0: Hi and welcome back to another episode of the Room Room Podcasts. Hey, as always, it's great to have you join us for another of our ruminant nutrition focused chats. My name's Charlotte Westwood. I'm a New Zealand based veterinarian and nutritionist who works for PGG Rights and Seeds based with my team at Kimaheer Research Centre here in Lincoln and Canterbury. So look, in today's podcast, we're really, really lucky to have well-known veterinarian, and I suppose Ginny Dudunsky, we're going to call you parasitologist. I hope that's right, along with veterinarian, but you can correct me. But anyway, welcome, Ginny. Great to have you along. Um, Thanks very much for having me, Charlotte. I'm a big fan of The Room and Room
1: um, on Facebook, so it's nice to be on the podcast. Um, But I I will um, just say that I think you have to have some sort of qualification in parasitology to be called a parasitologist. So I call myself a gumboot parasitologist because it's always been something I've been fascinated with and realised that it's such an important part of our farm systems um, and animal health. So um, right from my early years in practice, it was something I focused on. And um, yeah, here I am um, talking about it
0: all the time now. Absolutely. We'll we'll take gumboot parasitologist because here at The Room and Room, we also are gumboot level as well. So not too many words longer than wheelbarrow and we'll be just fine. <laughs> so look, you obviously, parasitology has been your thing for quite some time. We thought we'd kick off. Ginny, just where has your career come from to bring you through to current where you're working both as a consultant, but also for for Wormwise? Tell us your life journey and what got you interested in these little creepy, crawly, horrible things.
1: Yeah, thanks. Um, i I actually, in, in terms of um, career, I actually went to university to study agricultural science because I've just always been fascinated with farm systems and farming. And I think right from a small child, I knew that was where I wanted my life to be. Um, and then, yeah, halfway through my vet degree, I, I mean, th- through my ag science degree, I had a bet with a guy in my class to see who could get into vet school first. <laughs> But the reason for that was because halfway through ag science, we'd done a um, paper in animal health and I just went, oh wow, I didn't realise vets did all this stuff with livestock, sort of the vets in my life growing up had come and dug um, abscesses out of horses feet and things like that or vaccinated the cat and it didn't seem very exciting at all. Um, But when I saw that vets could be involved at a farm system level, that um, got me excited about it. So yeah, ended up Luckily, getting into the vet degree and uh, therefore spending um, six years studying rather than four or five um, to end up with that qualification. But on the parasitology side of things, um, I did a, a handful of years working in uh, large animal practice in the Manawatu at um, Fielding, um, and then at that time, m- all my classmates, you know, everyone was doing the OE, going overseas, like most young Kiwis do. But Going to the UK or Europe, which was the typical thing at that time, um, BSE and foot and mouth were the big things over there. And for me, who was so enthusiastic about sort of doing advisory work and helping farmers with their systems, I couldn't see any joy in going over there and just condemning every second ruminant I saw to death because it was either BSE or foot and mouth. So I ended up in Australia um, and I did six months, um, which will be dear to your heart, I did six months um, up. Up in the north, working with beef cattle for a, a pastoral company up there, um, and then I did six months working down in Western Victoria doing sheep reproductive work. And it was through that time in Australia that I became aware of the massive drench resistance problems that they were diagnosing um, in their sheep there. And I could see that further down the track, you know, New Zealand was just going to follow behind. Um, They, at that time, were much better at breeding resistant worms than than we were, but like any breeding program, you lag behind and and so did we. And here we are now in New Zealand in a relatively similar, if if not maybe worse position than Australia was then. Um, So I guess it was seeing what was going on in Aussie and the problems that that was causing um, and some of the challenges that producers and their advisors were having in terms of resetting systems um, to deal with that. And, you know, making the point that I don't think too many farms have gone out of business in Australia because of trench resistance and and ditto the same in New Zealand. But, you know, there are systems at the moment getting sort of pushed into corners with with how they manage lambs. And at the end of the day, it is, is, um, you know, rewinding and redesigning those systems that will allow people to keep... Doing what they're doing, but it, it won't be status quo. Um, so yeah, it was that time in Australia that that got me interested in that. And so when I came back to New Zealand, it was something I encouraged farmers to do was to look at how drenches were performing on their farms. And you know, we started doing reduction tests and more reduction tests in the Manawatu. I was lucky to work with Trevor Cook, who's a well-known sheep vet in that district. And, you know, then about that time, the National Drench Resistance Survey was done in 2004-05, I think. And, um, yeah, that highlighted what was then a very surprising level of drench resistance to most Kiwis. And I sort of sat there going, oh, yeah, <laughs> this is this is probably what I Familiar. expected. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, so it's just been an area that I've beavered away at uh, for 20-plus years. <laughs> and, you know, at, while doing all that learning, certainly learning, you know, what I guess what works and what doesn't and, and what are the aspects of farm systems that need to be really functioning well to manage parasites well with lower drench inputs, which, you know, in the end, that is where we need to be heading. Most New Zealand uh, sheep, cattle farmers, their careers began in the age of, you Effective drenches, right? Like Fibenzol was was the first really effective broad spectrum drench um, released in about sixty four, I think. So there's not too many people still farming now that that were farming before sixty four. Um, so you know we have all grown up with some sort of routine drenching recipe or whatever in our heads, and um, you know some of that stuff is is certainly being challenged now, and we're having to look for ways to to deal with it from
0: from other angles. Well, I suppose that feeds in beautifully in terms of all of your experience. And thank goodness you did that trip to Australia on behalf of New Zealand is all I can say. Thank you so much for foreseeing this and, uh, and you know, getting us in a good position to sort of fight back against these issues. But first things first is that obviously it's, it's quite often a hidden cost, internal parasites. Like, what does it cost the New Zealand industry, you know, across the various industries? Have Wormwise ever sat down and put a value on what it costs us as an industry every year? There's been various
1: estimates done, and it's in the many millions of dollars. Um, I think Ag Research did kind of a big look at it quite some years back, and it might have been something around the 50, 60 million dollars nationally. Wow. Um, I see uh, FECPAC with their resistance data and the project that they did with Sainsbury's um, a few years ago, looking at the cost of resistance. You know, they quantified that for both the UK and New Zealand, and they're really big numbers and the, um, they've recently put out um, some some press release about a revised number based on what their resistance data is showing them. And I feel like it was something like 98 million a year to the country or something. So, you know, but whatever those numbers are, they're big numbers and and when you compare them to some of our exports, they're a chunk of value, right? But, you know, what does that mean on the individual farm? You know, that that, those national numbers mean nothing to me as an individual operator here on on the Western base, you know? Um, So what does it mean? Um, I think, some farms are starting to really see that now in terms of where combination resistance has got to a point where they actually can't grow lambs out in the autumn. And they've got lambs that are just either standing still at sort of at, a, at one level or even getting sick and dying at, at a worse mm-hmm. level. So that is really starting to cost some farms. There has been some work done when one of the, we call them the novel drenches, right? If you're a sheep farmer, you'll know about Zolvix and Startect. If you're a a dairy person, you might not have heard of those two drenches, but they're relatively new drench families. Um, To be fair, they've probably been around about 12 or 15 years now, but we still call them the novel Mm. drenches because until recently, they haven't had a lot of use. So when Monipantil or Zolvix was first released, there was some comparative work done showing the growth performance and uh, carcass value performance of lambs either drenched regularly, i.e. monthly, with a drench that was leaving about 50% of the worms behind or a 100% effective drench, i.e. Zolvix monipantil. Mm. And by the end of that growth period of those lambs, which was basically from weaning till, say, April there was a nine kilo difference in live weight or a four and a half kilo difference in carcass weight between the lambs where half the worms were being left behind each time and the others um, that were being where every month all of the worms were being removed by monipantle. And the, the scary thing was that if you put those groups of lambs next to each other in a yard, with their wool on, because those lambs hadn't been mm. shorn, um, it is, as is quite typical in the Manawatu. Visually, you really couldn't tell the difference between those lambs just side by side, and this is what we see happening on farms, particularly you know, uh, prior to last summer, we had a number of either dry summers or autumns. We had in the North Island some quite bad facial eczema mm. seasons. Um, you know, some farms were badly affected by other animal health issues like viral pneumonia, and you get this poor Lamb performance in the autumn, which you know, unless you've got some really good forages, lamb performance in the autumn is typically pretty rubbish mm. on perennial pastures mm. anyway. <laughs> um, but you add in drought, facial eczema, things like viral pneumonia, and other fungal toxins in the pasture, and you'll get this real standstill or even weight loss in lambs and you know people are sort of waiting for the schedule to go up and then the things start to improve as it cools down and all of a sudden the lambs start growing again and we sell them out and and everything seems fine but you know what's been happening on a lot of these farms is that year on year that's just got tougher you know lambs haven't yielded as well even though they look as good Um, we suddenly find there's a whole lot more lambs that we just need to end up selling store in the winter because they haven't hit targets Mm and there's been all that other stuff going on which it's been easy to sort of justify the performance based on those things but underlying it in a lot of these farms has been the fact that their routine double combination triple combination whatever drench they've been using has been leaving large numbers of resistant worms Mm -hmm. behind and this is the thing until you've got a drench that's performing quite badly, i.e. leaving less than or more than 50% of the worms behind, you won't see it visually. And, you know, that the attitude that people have that, Oh, well, I'll know if I've got drench resistance because I'll I'll see Mm. that the animals are wormy. Man, you do not see it until it kind of hits you like a wave. And we've certainly seen that in lambs. Um, And we're starting to see it on some intensive beef finishing Mm. properties as well, particularly those those, um, 100 kilo calf systems um, where, yeah, all of a sudden you've got animals that really look unwell, whereas... Previously, you didn't realise anything was Mm -hmm. wrong. So, yeah, doing some testing of your drench performance um,
0: before you get to that point is fabulous advice. Absolutely. So listeners need to talk to their vets about that or can they collect some samples themselves? Best to talk to a vet and get sort of holistic advice around doing your faecal counting.
1: Yeah, I I think getting... Yeah, getting on side with a vet who knows what they're talking about in this space is really, really helpful anyway, right? Because what you do as you start to look at this stuff is you always have more questions. Mm. So it's much nicer to have a tame animal health (laughs) advisor who you can bring and talk to, you know, at the drop of a hat rather than having to sort of truck around and and do it all for yourself. Um, Although, you know, that that independent approach suits some people better. So that's fine. Um, But it is not the exclusive domain of vets. It is entirely possible to collect all your samples yourself and use an automated system. The the one that we have commercially available in New Zealand is called FECPAC. There's another automated system um, called Parasite that some veterinary clinics run. And then, yeah, there'll be others coming onto the market. I'm sure this is a growth area. And I do accept, you know, for a lot of Producers who might be an hour and a half or two hours from town, you know, it's just not that convenient to be running samples in and out all the time. So uh, finding a system that works for you so that you actually do it, I think is far more important than which system you well use. Because um, there is a bit of debate in the industry about, you know, what system's better and, you know, whether, whether things are valid or not. And I think just get on with it is the message and do what works for you. That's fabulous, yeah. Um, but yeah, that simple first question of is my drench working or not, that's a pretty easy one to get started with um, simply by you, you give your your lambs or your calves are drenched, and then 10 to 14 days later, preferably 14 for calves, tens 10's, 10's okay for lambs, collect you know some fresh samples and get them checked under whatever system you're using. And if the drench is working really well, there should be no eggs present. That's the basic advice. And if if there's any level of eggs present, then that's the start of another conversation with whoever you're getting help from. You need to find out what species that is. You might need to, you know, do some more checking to make sure it wasn't that your gun was letting, you know, drench go back or the shepherd did it and um, actually they had the gun set wrong or, you know, working through all of those scenarios is really important too, rather than just panicking straight away. Oh my God, we've got drench Mm. resistance. But yeah, yeah, if something's happened, you need to figure it out
0: and then go from there. Absolutely. So we will talk shortly about the role for nutrition and animal resilience or tolerance and all those sorts of things to internal parasite load, but obviously in the face of increasing resistance and whether our novels hold up and and are still available to us in the years to come with not much in the coming or any coming in the way of actives. So obviously we'd like to start it's all about nutrition and we'd like to start it's all about efficacy of drenches, and it's not it's neither of those. And I mean, we just before we start a recording, you're talking about a case study where you've been working alongside one of your clients uh, in your consultancy side of your business world. And working to change some things around, management right from the point of the ewe, not even talking about lambs. Tell us about that journey, and because I think it illustrates that it's not just about drenching, it's not just about nutrition, but it's a whole range of things, isn't it, that we need to consider, but we will come back to nutrition-specific shortly.
1: Yeah, Cole, and I think um, that particularly for sheep, the big opportunity to to deal with this is in the management of the pregnant ewe and, and the ewe in early lactation. The more lambs that we can have survive in the first place is fantastic. Um, I guess just taking a step back, like a lot of the uh, profitability analyses that I've seen or been part of for many years on sheep farms, it's all been about uh, sort of kilos of lamb weaned per, per hectare or per ewe per or whatever. And there's, we, we've followed this curve where we've um, lifted and lifted and lifted lambing percentage, which has done wonders for productivity. But in terms of drench use and drench resistance, to a point, um, the more twins and the more triplets that we have, the more risk we run of having a lot of lambs present at weaning, that can't immediately be be slaughtered or sold as good stores and the whole worm situation on a sheep farm is very much the, con- the worm challenge and contamination to all sheep on the farm is very much set up by those lambs mostly from weaning onwards so the more lamb days, we talk about lamb days on the farm the more lambs that are still on the farm at weaning and the more days that those lambs are grazing perennial pasture after weaning that sets up the bulk of worm contamination which occurs in the autumn and then that larval challenge you know, limits the growth of lambs but it's also um, impacting on the performance of, of mm. the ewes too. And the other thing that impacts on the performance of the ewes is that need to retain lambs because they're taking too long to grow so they pinch a whole lot of feed from the ewes. So We've got just winding back into this ewe genetics and performance thing. You know, we have bred these animals now who the majority of them have twins, a lot have triplets. You know, this season has been a perfect illustration of what happens when ewes up in good condition and have rising feed under Mm -hmm. them you know for most of the country we had a good growthy summer there's a probably a little exception down in the bottom of the south island but most parts of the country had a good growthy summer very good autumn uh ewes have been in better condition Mm -hmm. on many farms than they maybe ever have been and the farms that have managed to preserve that condition and and feed those ewes well now at lambing um man the you know the Benefit of that in terms of being able to grow out these lambs bigger is going to be huge, and so I think we need to really bring the focus back on the management and feeding of these ewes, so that we can really, really maximise their early lactate, their lamb survival, and their early lactation. Um, because the more lambs that we can grow into the high 30s and into the 40s as twins, because we can. On mum, um, so that way more lambs can go at weaning. I think that's where the opportunity is, and I know that's where the opportunity is because I can see it on farms that have been focusing on this for a while. And you know, our our best piece of data in terms of what ewes are physically capable of when they have good genetics for fecundity and milk production, and are fed to their absolute requirement mm. throughout. Late pregnancy and through lactation was some work that was done at Pokawa Research Station in Hawke's Bay. It was called the Pokawa Elite Lamb Project from memory. And the best singles in that project, and these these lambs were weaned at 84 days, so 12 weeks, so they're not 110 days or 115 days like some of the heavy weaning weights are. They were weaned at 84 days. The best um, singles were 50 or 51 kilos. Um, The best triplets, no sorry, the best twins were 47 and the best triplets were 43 wow. kilos, like imagine mm. that you know, if we can crack when it we're not on a, on a whole farm system in the hill country, da 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 we're never going to achieve that but if we could even get two thirds of the way towards that, we'd be so much mm. better off, um, and they didn't they didn't do anything fancy with a fancy crop or anything like that. The, the ewes were on good recently uh, renovated ryegrass clover pasture. But the ewes in that study, they, were, they never grazed below about 1,600 cover, Whoa. which is like the way you feed a dairy cow. But, but guess what? You know, when you feed a ewe like you feed a dairy cow, Huh, she can milk man and uh, yeah this the story that you I uh, shared with you before I came on like I'm just this farm that I've been working with for maybe four or five years and um, just just Bit by bit, really focusing on getting the ewe performance up on that farm, they have cracked it this year. um, And and the the ewes aren't on 1600 cover, but they've in that last part of pregnancy. There's probably some of the mobs at some of the times were probably a bit lower than 1200, but since those ewes have been set stocked on hill country farms and on, on sheep farms, it's really hard to control that feed supply the way you can on a dairy farm, right? So. They've probably bottomed out at about 1,200. um, They're lambing at a time where the grass is growing. They've put a bit of urea on. And... Those ewes now, the covers that they're on around about that 14 1,500, um, they'll very quickly have cattle going into those paddocks to stop that feed getting too long and, and losing quality. But man, every uh, just the, the look of those sheep, every ewe's got a beautiful udder on her. The twins have, have got beautiful, big, even twins. And even the triplets, like all three lambs in those triplet paddocks are the same size. And um, they've cracked it, and I'm so proud of them. And it's just – and it's a hill country farm. And it's evidence that, you know, yes, you know, it's much easier on a farm with that easy contour and that land resource where you can renew pastures and things like this. But this is just ordinary hill country pasture. Um, It's got reasonable fertility Mm -hmm. levels, but they should be higher. But just the way that that manager has has run that system, managed that winter – Cattle spent a lot of time locked down in the winter on that farm to prioritise Mm. the ewes um, and now they're coming back out and being sprinkled around um, into lambing paddocks and it's just such a joy to see
0: ewes looking like that. It's just awesome. That's fantastic. I mean, it's certainly um, principles of nutrition being shown there. But I guess one key observation that you did notice around ewes that obviously no capsules, no drenching, no any of them. They were just a la natural lambing down with nothing else on board. Oh, yeah. You mentioned about just what we would normally look for with some of your lighter ewes and looking a bit scungy, but but dirty around the back end and, and they were clean. Yeah. So tell us about what nutrition does for, for ewes and their internal parasite load through lambing. And a u that maybe is a lovely three point five versus a two. What what does it mean for the u herself? Yeah, so I
1: think just just to um,
0: to um,
1: be honest, um, on that farm, I think the two tooths did get a treatment prior to lambing, and so did some of the thin multiple ewes. I think that is something over time. Maybe not so much for the two tooths because their immunity is still not as robust as a mixed age sure. you, and I'm pretty relaxed about looking after two when it comes to mm, worms. Mm. Um, but I think over time that that need to hang on to the treatment of those multiples, I think we will let go of that. That's been something that's pretty prevalent. Um, it's very prevalent advice um, throughout the industry and I think both advisors and farmers are a little bit scared to let go of that treatment of light use. We know from um, some neat, data that came out of Massey um, as part of a ewe wastage project that Kate Griffiths, now Kate Flay, did. Um, she post-mortemed through that project something like 500 light ewes, which is a lot of ewes to post-mortem. Mm, mm. Um, and she found in that work that less than 20% of ewes that were light, and these were post mortem sort of throughout the year, um, whenever they were found, and, um, you know, less than 20% of those light ewes were light because of parasites. Right. So parasites... When a ewe is in poor condition, she is more likely to have her production affected by parasite challenge, but the parasites aren't the primary cause of of the light condition in most cases. So, you know, the the ways that we can protect our sheep is to have them in good condition um, and have them on better covers. You know, this farm I was on this morning, just that that was a comment that both the manager made while I was driving around with him. And then we caught up with one of the shepherds and I was chatting to her just off to one side. And she said, man, you know, my ewes are really clean. Like, I can't believe how clean they are this year. And it's like, yeah, man, because they're just not grazing down into that bottom two, two and a half centimetres the way that they Quite often are unfortunately, and yeah, just that was neat. And I will say though that that doesn't always happen. <laughs> um, know, sometimes, sometimes you can have great feed, and the ewes just look. You know, God, they're just daggy ears, and it's really frustrating. But on, on this farm in this year, it was really, really neat to see how clean the ewes were. It was very cool actually. That's outstanding as an outcome. I guess the other thing I the other thing I say to people about that too, Charlotte, is, you know, when our dairy cows on our dairy farms are in peak lactation and they are pumping the grass through and you are in the shed and you've always got to watch the back of your neck because you never know when that next skirt's <laughs> gonna come down the back of your collar. You know, we completely accept that when our cows are in, in peak performance that they are gonna have Loose feces like that, but by golly, if a sheep does that, you know, it's just different. Different standards. <laughs> and I, I do think that, you know, if, if we want our ewes to really push food through and really pump milk out. Like, if they're eating, you know, grass that's quite low in dry matter, all that, all that water's got to go somewhere. And we look at them and we think they've got worms. But how? why is that different to a dairy cow? I do think we hold our sheep to a different standard. <laughs> and I
0: think it's not fair. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, goodness me. So in terms of, like... How does it work? It's about that she's not grazing down low, she's not getting that, that load of uh, larvae at the bottom of a sward. What about, is it is it to do with her immune system being in better shape? Is she just more tolerant of other infectious things when she's in good order?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's not necessarily that these ewes have got their worms on board. They may well have have worms there that if the feed was not as good might be limiting their production somewhat and there's been work done at Lincoln showing that particularly with protein um, you know giving ewes a higher protein diet they can tolerate a reasonable parasite load and perform to the same level as a ewe that, that isn't parasitised. But I think I don't want to get hung up on protein because on, on sheep and beef farms, it is very much dry matter, number one. Usually there isn't enough dry matter. Um, ME, number two. Um, and then, you know, then we worry about tottering around the edges with things like protein. So I do, I get a bit um, grumpy <laughs> if people start talking about feeding ewe's protein because most of the time they're just, the grass is too short. That's brilliant. Couldn't agree more. So they may they may have some worms on board and I've seen farms where uh, people are very good, confident managers of their ewes with nutrition and uh, and covers and, and condition and everything over lambing. And I've seen people leave ewes with quite high fecal egg counts, i.e. like um, average egg counts of like six and 800 and, and not treat them because they, mm. they've done it before. They're confident that with the feeding and the... Um, and the management that they've got, that the ewes will still continue to pump out milk and and grow good lambs, and they do. The question that always comes from when I give that example is, oh my goodness, but you know, aren't the ewes putting down a whole lot of pasture contamination that's then going to impact those lambs? And on some farms, in some years, some mobs of ewes will contribute to. That, that it's called the periparturient rise, where the over means overlamming. My immunity relaxes a bit, and I end up with a few more worms on board, and my egg count goes up. Typically, that egg count's starting to go down again by docking as the user immune system goes, oh, hang on, mm. we need to wake up here, and we'll um, we'll get rid of these worms now. So that does happen, and in some years on some farms, that will contribute to uh, some infection in the lambs. Um, work that mm. Dave Lethwick did at Flock House showed that it, at in their system, it was one year and three. I wouldn't apply that to, to anyone or anything other than to say that it's not a consistent thing. And where mm. all the other things are going right for the ewes, you know, it's unlikely that, that any peak of, of egg production out of the ewes is going to affect the lambs too much. The other thing people need to remember is that. The, de- the hatching and development rate of eggs coming out of immune mixed stage ewes is much, much lower than the hatching and development rate of eggs that come out of lambs, mm-hmm. and the same applies for cattle. So those 100-kilo calves or those weaned lambs, a much bigger chunk of the worm eggs coming out the back of them will successfully develop through to infective larvae. Um, In lambs, it might be around about 30% at at a peak of of eggs that are laid that develop into infective larvae. In an immune ewe, it's only about 2%. So even though the ewe's may have reasonably high fecal egg counts, um, that does not necessarily translate through into larvae on pasture. Um, so, ewes, yeah, right. well-fed ewes are, are net removers of parasite contamination from a grazing area, but they have to be well-fed ewes. If they are under pressure, you know, particularly if they're younger, like a two-tooth ewe, or if they're a mm-hmm. fine wool ewe, they are more difficult to manage with regard to parasites. Because having a, a mixed-age flock of fine wool ewes is kind of like having a whole mob of two-tooths. Um, if you're talking about something like a Romney, so they are more difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, But again, the same thing applies talking to people who work more closely with fine wool sheep than I do. Um, Same thing applies in terms of condition on their back and grazing at a higher residual um, still
0: makes those ewes much less prone to worms as well. That's some amazing take homes there because it's just keeping it. You know, you, you said before at a gumboot level, and I mean, you've you've summed that up beautifully. Is that it's just about feed them, oh, yeah. feed them, monitoring, monitoring condition. may you know, maybe capsules for those light ones, but feed them, feed budgeting, eh? Yeah.
1: The other one I hear, the, the other thing I hear when it, if we're still just just to to flog this um you spring feeding thing to death, you flog, um, flog it other, to death, <laughs>
0: please.
1: <laughs> the, the other thing I quite often hear from farmers is oh, but I need all those mouths to eat that spring surplus or I need to run my farm this way because otherwise it gets out of control in the spring. Well, like the spring and the summer that we just went through in 22 and 23 in many parts of the North Island anyway, You know, the feed, it was a bit cold to start with, but the feed just never stopped growing. And I didn't see too many farms getting completely out of control. You know, there may have been certain areas of some farms that got a bit rough, but far out. Like, I do think now with the high-performing sheep that we've got, and as farms get better subdivided, better water, better control of grazing, which is that's just a trend in the industry and it will continue to a point, you know, that ability to control a spring surplus can be managed in I don't I don't want to say ten other ways, but it can be managed in half a dozen mm. other ways other than just carrying Oops. a whole big lot of stock through the winter and, and half starving them. So, you know, this farm I've been on today, like that's been that's always been one of their techniques. They they don't have breeding cows, but they do have trade cattle, and they're quite flexible about how and when they sell them, as long as they're making some sort of margin on them most of the time. Mm. Um, but they really shut those cattle down in winter, and then they don't set stock them with the ewes until the ewes have had the best of what they need, you know, through that early lactation period. Um, and I think there's a lot of opportunity there for people. You know, if you've got a breeding cow herd or whatever, just to look at how you're managing that. You know, where where are the points where you could just keep the pressure off the ewes for a wee bit longer or shut the cows up somewhere or you know more and more people have got forestry blocks rightly or wrongly you know can you poke the cows in there for just a couple more weeks just to let those I don't know you know it's going to be different on every farm but just looking at ways that we can preserve those covers under the ewes both towards the end of the winter rotation and and as we set stock just so critical Um, and you know the answer is going to be different for every farm but I do Mm. think that um, controlling the spring surplus thing I think we have to relook at how we do that as well, because it's used. In my opinion, it's used as an excuse.
0: Great, good, good sound advice.
1: <laughs> I'm going to upset. I'm going to upset some people, but yeah, I mean, I can I can see when it's done well, how, how well it goes. So, yeah,
0: <laughs> you're speaking from experience, and you're doing it as opposed to talking about it, so it it, it works. For breed of finishes, I mean, that's all about maternal nutrition, about the you. What about for guys that are um, picking up stores? taking them home, going to be finishing them over the summer. They don't have that control or or any influence on the ewe herself. What if we fast forward to post-weaning and and someone bringing in lambs to finish? What's some of the, the nutritional things they need to be thinking about? I mean, there's some common threads, no doubt, but specific to the lamb
1: yeah, that, that's cool. Thanks, Charlotte, because it leads me on quite nicely. I've got, I've got this thing going on. I've been discussing uh, with my beef and lamb research colleagues about this thing we've called the three pillars of parasite management, which kind of rolls off the tongue quite nicely. And the, the first pillar is everything I've talked about in terms of well-fed, well-conditioned, healthy, robust breeding stock. And yep. then the second pillar being young stock on what I call clean feed. So... Mm. Clean feed means feed that's got less worm larvae on it than your average hill country pasture. So depending on the farm, it might just be the average hill country pasture, but it might be that the lambs are out in front rotating in front of the other classes literally just picking the clover out of the sward and then being moved on and then something else comes in behind them. The worst thing you can do with lambs on a hill country farm I think nowadays with drench resistance is to think oh you know this little rotation here of 10 paddocks it's better contour we've got some relatively new grass on it we'll just rotate the lambs round and round mm-hmm. and round there that is where some of the wheels are starting to fall off on these farms with drench resistance because sure. you're just building up this population of worms that's been surviving regular irre- Drenches, mm. so that's sort of your breeder finisher one. But then for the for the people um, buying in store lambs and finishing them, there is nothing like a good clean new whatever it is, novel forage, whatever whatever the. When people ask me, what's the best crop for lambs? Like, there's no one answer to that, and I'm sure you get that too. Um, But I tell them it's whatever green, leafy, high ME forage grows well in your environment and, and suits your system, that is a relatively new so that it hasn't had a whole hasn't had used lambing on it it hasn't had all of last winter's Mm -hmm. lambs on it you know it's a relatively fresh new crop and ideally something that the lambs don't have to take too long to adapt to either is the other one Um, that's right I don't I don't think there's one answer for that but the The less worm larvae that our lambs have to take in or our 100 kilo calves have to take in with every bite of forage that they eat, the better they'll perform. And we do a cool exercise in our Wormwise workshops looking at that um, where we get farmers to guess. There's these four different groups of lambs and they've basically had four different treatments in terms of how many worms they're taking in every day. Um, And then there's a, a drenching layer in there as well and we get them to guess which growth line is which. But the take home from that is that lambs that are grazing or being given a forage that just has a very low trickle dose of larvae being ingested every day, their growth rate doesn't differ substantially or statistically from lambs that are eating no worms whatsoever. Mm. And the other advantage to that is that where lambs are eating just a, a very low kind of um, dose or trickle of, of worm larvae every day, that stimulation that those larvae give them actually helps to develop their immune response quicker. Mm-hmm. So just that, that sight of a few larvae every day. And when I say a few, it's like a thousand a day. <laughs> Sounds like a lot. But, you know, some of our hill country pasture might have something like 20,000 larvae or 30,000 larvae Oof. per kilo of dry matter. Yeah. So if, we can, if we can drop that right back <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and offer them something that's got a lot less. One, they're going to grow better, much better. And two, actually their immune competence to worms is going gonna, is gonna to snap in quicker as well. Mm. So if you then have to move them onto something else, they're not going to fall apart to the same degree. Just the quicker, that's another thing I say to people, the quicker you can get them through that delicate period where they're light and they can easily get quite shelly and, and just um, you know get them through that period to sort of that 40, 45 kilo kind of weight when they're starting to get a nice bit of fat on them, like just push them through that Period as quick as you can. Um, And then, man, they need way less drenching after that. One farm I've worked with here in the central North Island back from when I was in vet practice, um, when they started monitoring their ewe lamb replacements, which typically those ewe lamb replacements would have just got a drench every month Mm. from Mm. April right through till about October. Um, Once they actually started making an effort to feed them better and then monitoring their fecal egg counts rather than just blindly drenching them. He dropped out something like four or five drenches out of that system in, in that winter for, re, for realising that. So yeah you know, um, pushing them through that delicate period as fast as you can by feeding them the best stuff you can and then out the other end they need way less drenching so investment in good forage for those finishing lambs I think uh, is just so critical.
0: Yeah, Absolutely, makes the whole system a whole lot more sustainable doesn't it? Than sort of the Face of the resistance problem. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: And I, you know, um, if we're talking about crops and I know, you know, when you see farm consultants do things like gross margins on crops and, you know, what, Uh, lambs are going to grow this much faster but the crop costs this much and um, therefore the gross margin is actually not better than having them on grass. That's fine if you can control the worms but as soon as worm control becomes an issue on perennial Mm -hmm. pasture as it is starting to become on many farms those crops are worth their weight in gold and also the the pressure that they take off the rest of the farm in terms of giving more area to use to to get them back into condition for tupping and that sort of thing I do think yeah doing a gross margin on crops sometimes doesn't give you the full value of the crop yeah um, the other thing we haven't discussed is is kind of grazing I've, I've talked about doing long rotations but the other option too on farms that have a reasonable amount of cattle is preparing areas to wean lambs onto where you weren't lambing on it and you had cattle Mm, on it. mm. So trying to clean areas up a bit with cattle, that will typically provide better feed and lower worm challenge feed, but it's not ultra-reliable and you do have to monitor quite closely. Mm. On some farms, it goes great and you can stretch your drench intervals out in the lambs and, you know, you might be able to drop out at two or three drenches or something. And and on others, you find that, oh, actually, this feed still seems to be quite wormy and the egg counts are going Mm. up and we, we can't get away from monthly drenching. But the lambs will typically still perform better on that feed for it. So it's still worth, if cattle and sheep are integrated like that in your system, it's still worth trying to create some feed to wean onto where ewes didn't lamb. Absolutely. Uh, But I know that's not
0: possible on all farms, especially in the steeper hill country. mm, Something to aspire to, though, if you have got different classes available to you. Uh, You mentioned at the start of this, I guess, about 100 kilo calves, whether that be heifer replacements for dairy or increasingly Mm. dairy beef. What's some of the messaging that you can send out to people that perhaps are, are purchasing 100 kilo um, weaned dairy animals and that yeah. sort of stock class they have on farm, for example, does that lend ourselves to problems if we don't have another stock class and we end up just doing dairy beef or just doing dairy heifers on a runoff? What what sort of things at a holistic level, I suppose, to get away from necessarily having to continuously drench would apply for dairy heifer or dairy beef system.
1: Yeah, I think there are really good examples out there of people running dairy runoffs where they are feeding and managing to such a high level that that scenario you talk about where you've only got, you know, young animals and you're potentially going to run into a hole with failing drenches. There are people running systems like that where they seem to be immune to that, uh, which is fantastic. And I think their secrets are just the same stuff I talked about um, with the ewes, you know, very good feed levels at all times, really chasing that growth. Mm. Um, It does help in those young cattle systems if you are able to do some regrassing. So Emma Poole, who is also a Wormwise facilitator and Young Farmer of the Year and a mum and just like a dairy farmer and just so capable. All round (laughs) extraordinary, yeah. Yeah, I did a Wormwise workshop with her recently and, you know, her talking from her own experience to these farmers was just gold because they have a runoff under the Porongia Mountain. They're very focused on on all that growth stuff. They use, I think they have plantain and clover and they also have chicory in their system. Um, they will supplement when mm-hmm. they need to. They don't let the grass get too short. And they're also mindful of the fact that those little baby calves, you know, again, just like the lambs, they are the main source of the contamination. And if they run round and round and round on their own little rotation, that's where you're going to be breeding up drench-resistant worms. So the yearlings, because the yearlings are so well grown out, um, they're actually becoming quite immune to worms themselves. So they can do the vacuum cleaner role. Um, But if you haven't grown your yearlings out well, um, and they're still behind target, um, you know, they won't be such good vacuum cleaners. So, Mm, again, mm. you know, pushing them through that delicate phase on good feed – um, the other thing I do see some good rearers of these of these young cattle do is just be prepared to invest in supplement over the first summer. It doesn't all have to be about crops, sure. and you know say what you like about mm. palm kernel, that works really well in that role. Um, <laughs> and or, and w- whatever or, and makes or, work. yeah and or whatever supplement works, but um, continuing to supplement them over that first summer to push them through that mm. delicate phase. Mm get them to a point where they are more able to tolerate worms and then you can either be stretching drench intervals out or leaving, you know, leaving the top performers undrenched at times is also something you can do with Mm. young cattle. Mm. Yeah, so, you know, those are all management things you can do on your own place. Um, The one thing I would warn people about now who are buying in particularly those dairy beef off large intensive calf rearing businesses that have been doing it a long time is that the calves coming off some of those places may be starting to get worms in them that may survive your routine combination drenches. So if if the person, whoever it is, that's providing you with those calves can't provide you evidence, i.e. faecal weed count reduction test information, about the efficacy of the common drenches that you might normally use when you bring them on, then the drench of choice for those Mm. 100 kilo calves is now Zolvix. A triple combination may not be enough as a quarantine treatment. Um, Mm, And mm. we do have cases now around the North Island at least, and, and I believe the South Island, where calves have been introduced to a farm. They were quarantine treated with a triple and there are worms there, both Cuperia and Ostertagia, that have survived that triple drench and gone on to make those calves sick. Mm. So if you can't get good drench efficacy information from the vendor, then Zolvix is your safest choice as a quarantine. And a quarantine, and this applies to both lambs and calves, a quarantine isn't just a drench and out. If you can possibly get them drenched before they're tracked, that's awesome because then they'll spend some time on the track or mm. even before, you know, even as they come into the yards to empty out, um, so they, they, you drench them, uh, some of the faeces that are coming out that still have worms that haven't been, haven't seen the drench, go out in the yard, they go out in the truck. When you get them to your place, they should stand off so that it's been around about 24 hours from treatment to being released onto your pastures. Mm. And actually, the ideal is forty-eight, but we're not going to advocate that to anybody because that's just too (laughs) short. But twenty-four hours will get rid of a lot of them. I just took some sheep away this morning, and I, you know, they stood in the yards overnight, and it was amazing how few feces then came out of my trailer on the way. Yeah, nice example. (laughs) So, so emptying, you know, I think you know, parasitologists will tell you that worms can still pass out after a number of days Mm. after a drench. Mm. But yeah, twenty-four hours is a good compromise. So that's easy to do for calves, right because you can pop them in the yards they can have water they can have some meal because they're used to that Mm. they can have some silage they can sit there quite happily for 24 hours um, and then you can let them out onto your pastures it is a little bit harder for lambs because they typically won't eat supplement but just sticking to that 24-hour rule and thinking about how you can make that work keeping lambs on a bare area for that time or you know pick at some good good silage it's amazing what they'll pick at when the silage is good Um, just to stop any worms that were already passing out of the gut before you gave that fancy drench. Stop stop them from populating your pastures. Mm, And then when they do get released onto the farm, they need to go onto an area that isn't brand new grass. If we unluckily have worms surviving our quarantine drench, we don't want them to be the only worms populating an area that's nice and clean. So just put them into a paddock that's... Run lambs already, or run calves already for a year or two. Yeah,
0: yep. Hopefully, a lot of susceptible wor- worms already kicking around there to dilute them down. Right? Is that the, the, the right. science around it? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So I, I suppose the hundred kilo calves, you know, in their first summer and autumn. What's your advice around faecal egg counting, and at what age or, or and or live weight do calves get to before faecal egg counting's less? practical or less reliable to give an indication of a worm burden yeah
1: good good question yeah because it does vary between cattle and sheep and we talk about using faecal egg counts for monitoring all classes of sheep and they are useful for that but for cattle calves younger than six months faecal egg counts are a reasonably reliable guide to the level of worm infestation that the calves have between six and say nine to twelve months They're still useful information, but we do need to just take it with a little grain of salt. Sometimes cattle can still have a production-limiting parasite burden, but that not be reflected in the egg counts. So they may have low egg counts, but they may still be under pressure from worms once they're into that sort of six-month plus to 12-month range. Mm. Um, And certainly after 12 months, Um, faecal egg counts aren't a very good guide to what's going on in cattle unless they're high like if you've got a group of ill thrifty cattle and you take some faecal egg counts and they're all in the high hundreds well you've got your answer Mm -hmm. but if you've got a group of ill thrifty cattle and you take some faecal egg counts and they're all quite low like 50s and 100s and things like that you still can't say for sure that it isn't parasites particularly Ostotargia so Ostotargia is the nasty bogey worm (laughs) that (laughs) really can knock cattle around um, when they're older um, and that isn't a very prolific egg layer. Yeah. And also then the immune system of the cattle can be sort of keeping the egg production down, mm. even though the worms are still there mm. and causing mm. problems. Mm. So,
0: yeah, those are the general rules around egg counts in cattle. That's brilliant. Very sound. And, and uh, again, very practical advice. With well, thanks. Anything else around the nutrition? I mean... I I think you've covered it beautifully, which is about fully feeding. Energy's the first limiting nutrient. Protein's nice to have, but for normally pasture-based systems, it's not going to be the silver bullet for sorting things out. But any, anything else around the nutrition that you'd really like people to be thinking about, aside from just feed them?
1: Uh, yeah, I think it is just feed them. And the other interesting thing I see is as farms get better and better at meeting just the overall sort of ME requirements of of their stock at at, at as many as much of the year as possible because you know there's always periods where you do have to shut things down a bit the perceived need for some of the trace elements uh, seems to go away a little bit as well in sheep and beef
0: systems. Oh, so God, you gave me a thumbs up. Yeah. Oh, that's just really funny because we're both on the same page about trace minerals being further down the list.
1: Yeah, so, you know, that one, the, oh, those, you know, the cattle look awful. They've got pale coats and they're scouring and they need copper. And, yeah, in some parts of the country, there are frank deficiencies of, of copper. But, man, I also see... Um, You know, bulls finishing off um, high-performing systems where they're being killed before their second winter, you know, killed before Christmas. And and they've got low copper levels in their livers, but it hasn't done anything to them. I'm being a bit facetious, but the the perceived need for a lot of these kind of animal remedies does drop off as you feed them better. That said, one thing I will say is that um, deficiencies of selenium in our sheep systems are starting to pop up again as people use... Zolvix and Startek more routinely for drenching those drenches aren't mineralized whereas most of the other common drenches that we give um, sheep uh, have been mineralized so just watch that um, that selenium one but selenium is real easy to deal with right there's multiple ways you can deal with it but just watch that one and a little bit the same maybe with the cattle as well if we're um, if, if we're getting to a stage where we're dropping a lot of drenches out just making sure that you know on one hand i say you know the trace elements become less of an issue but just keep it in the back of your mind as well yeah and i mean liver liver checks on animals that you're sending to slaughter routinely are really easy way just to keep a watching brief on that it shouldn't ever catch you by surprise um but it, it can so
0: just just bear that in mind Mm. Oh, really, really well said, and I'm—I agree with you. I, I personally love the topic around trace mineral nutrition. It's just—it's something that's really been my thing for for a good number of years. But sadly, quite often, it's the top of the list. You know, have I got an internal parasite issue because I've got low selenium? When you say, well, let's just feed them first, get the new condition, get the feeding levels right, get the energy, less so the protein, but get all those things right. And but fact they're eating more, they're getting more of everything, all nutrients, including trace minerals, ironically. So um, I, I love it that we're both on the same page on that. And I'm sure listeners will be as well. But it does infuriate me sometimes when the conversation opener is about yeah. trace mineral nutrition, when let's have a look at pasture covers. Oh, there are a thousand out there, and oh, we won't go there. Well, Jenny, that's a wrap. You've been very generous with your time amongst, uh, on what we, we don't have video on for the listeners, but I'm watch, watching your house getting packed up in the background. So very, very grateful um,
1: to you for taking time out today. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been great. And um, thank you for letting me ramble on. It's um, been an easy podcast to do.
0: Oh, there's no rambling. I mean, every minute of this podcast is just a, a wealth of information for our listeners. And uh, I suppose for listeners that uh, have enjoyed listening to you, Ginny, I know that I've already stalked and listened to some of your podcasts and you obviously, for each podcast, tailor it to a different audience and to specifics around more information about drenches, for example, and that. So so what are some of the places for listeners to Google if they'd like to hear more depth and detail around things that we may not have, have gone into huge detail?
1: Yep. so definitely the Beef and Lamb website – that has just recently been revamped and it's got a really, really good search engine in it now. Um, So if you just pop, you know, Parasite Podcasts or or My Name or Wormwise or whatever, those should all pop up if anything that beef and lambs had anything to do with. But the other place to look, not just for podcasts, but just for shorter videos, is the Wormwise Facebook page. Mm -hmm. So Wormwise, um, you know, while it's about worm management, so much of worm management is about how you feed things. So um, it is a little bit death by feeding as well. (laughs) Death by feeding is good by us here at the Room and Room. (laughs) yeah 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 so you can jump on there and a lot of those other podcasts that i've done um, like for um, head shepherd and other ones like that uh, you'll find them in that facebook feed if you go scrolling
0: back through it as well Oh look, that's brilliant, Ginny. Because I think this has hopefully um, got some appetite going with some of our listeners to really delve into this area about the interaction between internal parasites and nutrition. So, on behalf of us here at the Rumen room, room, we just can't thank you enough. And your role as your gumboot parasitologist, and uh, you've certainly shared a wealth of information for us today. So, look, as Ginny says, for more information, beef and lambs a good place to start. For more things to do with ruminant nutrition, you know the deal. Uh, routine listeners, go and have a look around the uh, Facebook group, the Rumen room, room. listen into some of our other podcasts. And importantly, if you've enjoyed Ginny coming in and doing a podcast anyone else that you'd like to come in or if you'd like Ginny to come back and give more information just drop us a comment get in touch with me direct message through Facebook or wherever you want to find me and we'll certainly line that up because I personally think it's great that it's not just about nutrition it's interactions with other aspects of farm management so thanks again Ginny and for the listener uh, for tuning in I hope everyone has an amazing day out and about thanks to you all cheers